Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 809, air date October 21st, 2020. And uh, Facebook. Good, we're live. All right, Hi. this is Dr. Shiva Ayadure. We have an interview that we're doing with two uh, students who reached out to us from Phillips Academy in Andover. Is that right? Yep. And we're going to talk about a whole range of issues. We're going to talk about... Uh, COVID-19, forced vaccinations, election fraud, um, uh, uh, lockdowns, et cetera. And so we look forward to having a good conversation. We're very interested that young people are interested. And I know there's a whole bunch of people in, in the high school, 18 to 24 crowd who love our campaign. So we're really happy to have you guys on. So why don't we just jump right into it? All right. Um, just uh, I just want to start off by thanking you, Dr. Shiva. It's um, truly our honor to be able to interview you. Um, I'm William C2. I'm an 11th grader at Phyllis Academy Andover, and um, I'm one of the co-president of our history uh, history association, and we're extremely honored to have you ha be the, have the opportunity to interview you. So um, today with me is uh, one of the fellow, my fellow co-presidents. Uh, Ishu, why don't you introduce yourself real quick as well? Hi, my name is Ishwar, and you can call me Ishu. I'm also an 11th grader at, uh, and fellow co-president of Phillips Academy History Association. And in addition to asking questions about biological aspects of coronavirus and how it interplays with politics and the government, we hope to also get to know a little bit more about you and on a personal level. And we hope to understand your personal experiences and challenges during the coronavirus pandemic and how your lifestyle has also changed during these difficult times. Yes, um, Ishu here is a student in uh, organic chemistry and biology. So he has prepared some questions about the immune system and the coronavirus. So I'm gonna hand the floor to Ishu and he's gonna start off by asking some questions. So uh, Dr. Shiva, I know uh, you're an MIT alum and we, also, we wanted to start off by asking about the role a healthy immune system plays in fending off against the coronavirus. As I know that weak immune systems as a result of aging can uh, make the symptoms of coronavirus more severe. And we see that, especially in nursing homes. And I was wondering what exactly does a healthy immune system do to help you against the coronavirus? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, look, let's just step back and look at, you use the word system, right? Mm -hmm. So we have to understand, first of all, what is a system? And the best people understand systems are engineers. Scientists, medical doctors, frankly, don't, do not understand systems. And the reason is uh, medical doctors and scientists are what we call reductionist, the opposite of systems thinking. They actually study little pieces, parts of a thing, right? So if, the, if it's the old story of the six blind men who come to see the elephant because the king brings them in and he asks them what you see, they're all touching little pieces of the elephant and they have a very wrong view of what they're seeing. The elephant is a whole system. So first of all, I can't over impress on people that medical doctors and scientists um, get way too much respect because their profession, which you know is understanding little parts, um, met the medical system, modern Western medicine actually came out of wartime medicine where a soldier or something occurred to them and their goal was to stop that one little you know bleeding in some place, not to look at the whole body. And scientists essentially probe little pieces unless they're system scientists which are a few of them. So that's the first thing. So uh, my background, because you wanted to talk about that, is, is, is training in engineering. I've built large scale systems. 
software systems, be it the first email system when I was 14, to many, many companies and technologies I've, I've built. And plumbers and electricians understand this because we always have to look at the whole system. So the immune system is a very complex system. And one of the things that comes out of systems theory or systems thinking is that what is a strong system? And one of the properties of a strong system is the word, the R word, what I call resilience. So understanding resilience is a way to really understand how do you create a healthy system? So what is resilience? Whether it's a man-made system or a natural system, one of the properties of strong systems is its ability for resiliency, which means um, it can take a hit and it can bounce back uh, to its original position, but actually even stronger. So an example of that is if you go exercise, you your body, you impose a stress on it, which is let's say weight, and initially you feel sore, but you actually come back not to where you were, as you exercise, you actually come back stronger. You follow what I'm saying? So that's a resilient system. And you have this in engineering systems too. Even if you look at any of the man-made systems, if you don't use certain things, they actually decay and they what? They rust, right? We're supposed to move our cars, we're supposed to move things, and they actually function better. So resilience is one of the important properties of all systems. So when you apply that to the immune system, you start unraveling how the level of, frankly, idiocracy that we've been practicing with this uh, whole lockdowns and isolating people, et cetera, because the purpose of the immune system has taken billions and billions of years to evolve. Um, and over those years, and even, even if you don't believe in evolution, even in shorter periods, even if you look at natural design, the system was designed for resilience. But by and large, the system is waiting to be used. It's waiting to be stressed. So if you look at the multiple aspects of the immune system, which is beyond just the innate immune system or the adaptive, that's sort of a 1915 understanding of the immune system, sort of a Fauci understanding of the immune system or a medical doctor understanding. The reality is the immune system has many, many more uh, integrative systems. It's got the innate, innate system, which we've talked about, which is the macrophages and the neutrophils, all that things that your body is first exposed to, right? So the things a pathogen hits in your eyes or your nose, your mucous membranes, and, and these, the, the, the set of uh, systems that are there, macrophages, neutrophils, those are the early systems which sort of just go out and try to attack anything that they see without specificity. But then the secondary system that you have is not the adaptive system, but you have the interferon system. And the interferon system, which is what I did a lot of my work on at MIT for my PhD, um, is the interferon system is involved in actually interfering with virus replication. And in fact, the interferons were discovered in the 50s where once you get hit by one pathogen or virus, your body actually gets, upregulates a set of interferons. IR, you know, and there's a whole set of them, IF, IFN, uh, alpha, beta, gamma, lambda. And these interferons actually have an effect of protecting you against many other viruses. And, and the interferon system is a missing link then to the adaptive system. And the adaptive system is the one that creates antibodies, which is all that the vaccine manufacturers focus on. But that's only one of the subsystems. And then you have your microbiome, which is those 60 trillion bacteria in the gut. Much of it, we're just le learning what they're about. And the virome, 380 trillion viruses, and then the gut brain access to the neural system. But bottom line, when you look at the system, what you realize is that these systems are waiting to be stressed. 
the interferon system, for example, when you get hit by one virus, interferons get created to protect you against many other viruses. So you see that your body actually wants to be stressed and it's supposed to be exercised. So, so the, to answer your question, based on this background, the strength of an immune system is building resilience. So for example, they've done kids, you know, young babies or children who live with homes, which have no dogs, let's say uh, a dog that just lives inside and a dog that goes in and out. Well, they found a massively uh, significant reduction, 70 to 80% reduction in ear infections among the babies with those dogs that go in and out. Clearly we're supposed to be exposed to stuff. So moving on to people who have a weak and dysfunctional immune system, is, which is what we should focus on. Because when you have a weak and dysfunctional immune system, your body, when it sees a pathogen, be it a virus, fungi, right, parasite or bacteria, it overreacts. No different than a car with very, very poor shock absorbers. You hit a bump and it overreacts, right? So the way you soften the blows of that and the way you modulate the immune system is one of the ways is nutrients, right? One of the nutrients is obviously vitamin D3. Vitamin D3 is an antimicrobial, specifically the catholicidins, which is through a set of chemical processes that vitamin D3 produces catholicidin antimicrobial proteins, which actually blow up viruses at cell walls. If you look at the interconnection between the thyroid, vitamin A, and iodine, you find out something very important that vitamin A really protects our cell walls. So your body, if the thyroid is working properly, takes carotenoids, which come from the dark, uh, you know, leafy green or the purple fruits, and your body converts those to vitamin A. As you age, to answer that question, people's thyroid levels go down. That's why iodine is so important, particularly iodide. And over the last 50 years, with all the scare that, again, the MDs did, the reductionist MDs scaring people, oh my God, salt is gonna kill you. People stopped eating salt, which had iodine in it, right? And so people's levels of iodine have been very, very low, low, much less than probably thousands of times or tens of thousands of times than it was even in the 1990s. So iodine is very important. Zinc, very important for stopping viral replication. And obviously vitamin C during periods where you have massive stress. You know, at least 10, 20,000 papers have been written in ICU settings, the importance of giving high dose vitamin C. So the bottom line is, and vitamin C modulates what we call the cytokine storm, where your body overreacts. So when you step back and look at this from a system standpoint, imagine having a car without shock absorbers and a car with shock absorbers, right? Very different ride. You're gonna have a horrible time if you're particularly going through the streets of Boston, which by the way, Massachusetts has one of the worst infrastructures in the United States, thank you to the corrupt swamp of Charlie Baker, et cetera. But uh, you, your car would be destroyed. So the same thing with your body. If you don't have a strong, resilient immune system, that's what the issue is. But the establishment of people who are more interested in making sure that they create their trillions of dollar marketing model with vaccines, uh, particularly big pharma, their entire thing has been to scare people, not to talk about public health. I'm probably the first guy who brought this up, exposed Fauci, and I was able to do with confidence because of my training from an engineering standpoint. But I hope that answered your question. Yeah, thank you so much. I especially like the part about the vitamin and how it like prevents the cytokine storm, because in, in most elder like elderly people, their immune system immune system kind of overreacts even after the virus has sent the viral load is almost gone 
So like it hurts the right. lung cells by like damaging yeah. tissue. And that's mainly what causes a severe re reaction right. to the virus. So you, if you read any of these articles, somewhere in the little bit, they'll say, oh yeah, the cytokine storm, overstimulation of the immune system. And if you actually go back and look at this, all of these viruses have a proclivity for going to particular tissues, right? Some go to the lungs, some go to the gut, some go to the endothelial in the heart. And so when you have that kind of condition, what ends up happening is, and if you have a weakened and dysfunctional immune system, your body goes and attacks those tissues. In the case of the Ebola virus, your body starts attacking the endothelial. That's why people start bleeding from inside. In the case of coronaviruses, your body starts attacking the epithelial in the lungs. And that's why people get fluid buildup. And then, then it's quite amazing that people don't understand basic engineering. You have, imagine having a ball this big, half of it filled with water, which is what happens when you get edema and then shoving more pressure to it. You guys probably in chemistry studied Boyle's law, right? Pressure and volume are inversely proportional. So if you have less volume, you're gonna have more pressure. So we've been blowing up people's lungs. That's what they've been doing, putting people on ventilators when the first thing they should have done is given people high dose vitamin C, about 100 grams is what I wrote to the president, you know, titrated, and that will essentially uh, give that buffering and stop that cytokine storm. And all of this is very well documented. Uh, I'm sure Fauci knows about this, and most of the medical doctors probably don't know about it because most of them are ignorant about a systems approach. Thank you so much for that thoughtful and detailed answer. Yeah. Uh, moving on, we'd like to also ask you about uh, prevention measures at schools, organizations, and corporations nationwide, but also especially in Massachusetts. Uh, what coronavirus case reduction strategies do you feel are the most effective and which ones seem to be redundant or unnecessary and almost spread a scare, like you mentioned? Yeah, so let's. So you said, what is a coronavirus reduction strategies? First of all, why should we need to reduce coronavirus? Let's just start there, okay? Who came up with the idea that we should, it's like saying, let's, I mean, let's just step back and go to the assumptions here. Um, you can look at the number of people that get the flu every year, right? Um, you know, and any type of, uh, during any type of flu season. So the notion is that the, the denominator is the most important thing to look at, right? What would be interesting is you have 380 trillion viruses in your body. I have 380 trillion, William has three, and so on. We could frankly test for any virus. And I bet you we find in the human population that billions of people have this virus or that virus, okay? So the first of the issues, what is the dominator here? So you can keep testing and testing. By the way, as you know, there's a monetary interest to testing. Hospitals who find a positive coronavirus were getting $13,000. If someone died of coronavirus, I think it was $35,000. And then the ventilators were another 35K. So people have been making money from finding positive coronavirus, the denominator, and also people dying of coronavirus. So if you just step back and we just look at the data in Massachusetts, and what you find is 98.2% of the people who died, the numerator of the people who died of coronavirus were people with pre-existing conditions. The average age, when I last looked at it, was 82.5. The average, the average life expectancy in Massachusetts is 80, 80, 80 years old, okay? So sometimes you just need to take a big step back beyond the hype and look at the actual numbers. There's a numerator and there's a denominator. The numerator is also highly suspect in this case because um, 
people were being categorized. Anyone who were, was dying of something else, if they tested positive, where, where they said that was a cause of death. And I think you, you may know of this, right? Um, so you had, uh, we had friends of ours who were National Guard who were sent into New York. They found some guy lying in the you know alleyway, dead of a gunshot, coronavirus. So the numerator is highly suspect. The denominator can keep growing. And even Fauci in an April journal article, he said, well, this is going to be probably no less than the flu. Okay, no worse than the flu. So we just need to step back. And what I want to argue is that the numerator and the denominator, particularly the numerator, is highly suspect. So when we keep saying, how do we protect people from the coronavirus? It's like saying, how are you going to protect people from any virus? And if you follow that conclusion, what I would argue with, with people who are saying they need to protect and we need to wear masks, I would say those people really believe in masks, which by the way, are not going to protect you. If you look at the cloth masks, 97% of the stuff goes through the cloth mask, 45% goes through the medical mask. You have to wear the N95 and most people probably get headaches from that over two hours. So the issue is if we truly cared about public health, you start recognizing that if you want to follow that path, then people should probably stay at home, put saran wrap around their house, or probably build a sealant around their house and never go outside. That's where, that's where that conclusion leads you to. The other conclusion, if you believe in resilience of the immune system, that says, okay, this comes down to a much more common sense, practical, rational solution which is what we should do is we should boost people's immunity. Those people are healthy, young people, those people who don't have pre-existing conditions, we should all be working, we should be enjoying our lives. If anything, getting out in the sun, in the Northeast in the winter, winter time, making sure you take enough D3 cocalciferol, getting your vitamin A, getting your vitamin C, zinc, and the proper nutrients. That's what 99% of us should be, or 90% of us should be doing, okay? Elderly people, obviously, you learned this from your grandmother. If you got sick, you stayed home, you isolated yourself, you got healthy. Right. This is common sense. But the entire basis of this has been fear mongering and it's driven by power, profit and control. That's what's been driven by because and it's frankly driven by the fact that the big pharmaceutical industries over the last 20 years, their profits have been plummeting because single compound molecules, single molecule drugs are not being allowed by the FDA year over year. Pharmaceutical companies spend 30% year over year in R&D, and you can see it. I mean, I think I've shared some of the data. Every year, they spend more and more money in R&D. It's like you spending more and more money on tuition, and you're getting less and less education. So that's what pharma's been doing. They spend more and more money on R&D, and they're finding, and in fact, the FDA is not allowing many of these drugs because of the side effects. They don't make it past phase one or two or three. So that's what's going on. And... You and I can sue a pharma company if it hurts us. If it, however, you cannot sue a pharmaceutical company from vaccine injury. Thank you to the Kennedys. The Kennedys, John Kennedy, who passed the um, you know, Kennedy Vaccination Act in 1962. His brother, Ted Kennedy, instead of getting rid of that act when the injuries were coming, actually created a nice big wall to protect the vaccine manufacturers, which means you and I can't sue vaccine manufacturers. We have to go to a court. So basically the vaccine manufacturers are indemnified and they don't have to go through the same regulatory process. So this is where it's all, this is what it's actually all about. When you rip away all the layers, you find out it goes back to a trillion dollar market opportunity to an in, a trillion dollar industry that is basically plummeting to the ground. 
So they need their trillion dollar market opportunity. So they have to scare us. But if they really cared, we should be passing out vitamin D3 on corners. By the way, homeless people, what I would call quote unquote bums who are out on the street, very few of them had COVID-19 or issues because they got a lot of vitamin D3. Thank you so much, Dr. Shiva. Uh, now I'll pass the floor to Will, who will, who's very passionate about historic history and politics. And he has a few questions about uh, the government during these times. Great. Thank you, Dr. Shiva. Yeah. Thank you, Yishu. Thank you, Dr. Shiva, for, that, for your answers. So let's transition from the immune system to uh, the area surrounding the government. So uh, your campaign, you, uh, Shiva for Senate, uh, is founded upon the call for truth, freedom, and health. So how are you going to address the current failures of, the, of many uh, government officials who have failed to, con failed to address the coronavirus issue? What sort of laws, what sort of legislatures are you going to push for to help yeah. us improve in the current situation? That's a great question. Look, our campaign, Truth, Freedom and Health, is not just, I mean, it's a great slogan, but it's, so if you take that as the slogan that we present to people, which people love, and then if you open up the hood underneath that, it's got really three very particular legislative policies that go with that, that are extremely well thought out, that go to very scientific and engineering understanding. One of them is it goes to the premise that without freedom, which is the ability for you and I to discourse here, communicate, debate, uh, have open discourse, that none of the other things can happen. And that discourse requires healthy people, healthy infrastructure, because if people aren't healthy, people aren't, if you don't have proper infrastructure, you don't have the strength to even fight for freedom. So let's talk about freedom. Today, the, you know, when you go back to 1792, in the, um, when you go back and look at the founding of this country, the founders of this country, you know, you had, as, as you remember in history, the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists, right? The Federalists believed in a strong federal government, the Anti-Federalists wanted to disseminate power to the states, right? That's where sort of a lot of this argument started. But people like Thomas Paine would not accept the Federalists positions unless they gave the people something, which is where the Bill of Rights came from. And the, the First Amendment, which is the right to free speech, assembly, and the right to petition your government, which is the ability to critique your government. These were pillars of the freedom of speech or the First Amendment. These were constitutionally guaranteed rights by the Declaration of Independence, unalienable rights. But the First Amendment was the ability for us to have discourse. And pursuant to the First Amendment, all of us were the press. Let me repeat that. You were the press. Ishwar was the press. I was the press. Jennifer was the press. All of us. Everyone on this call was the press. And so in 1792, in order to instantiate that, they created a very interesting institution, which was called the United States Postal Service. Now, why did they do that? It was remember at that time they didn't have the internet, they didn't have fax machines, they didn't have iPhones. Physical mail was a way that we communicated. And if you go look at the 1792 Act, which established the Postal Service, it was created. They had a lot of deep discussions about privacy. Because remember, the Crown had the Crown mail system before this, and they would open up our letters and they would read everything we were saying. But the Postal Service was set up that each one of us could be the press. You could write whatever you wanted. You could send a communication. And in fact, the Postal Service had its own police force that if anyone interfered, it was a 22 year sentence in prison. 
quite extraordinary. But it wasn't, remember at that time, they only had physical letters, but it was set up for something beyond physical letters. It was really for all communication. So if you look at that framework, the postal service was the framework, the infrastructure, which enabled the first amendment to take place, which was all of us were the press. This is something we need to understand. So now fast forward to 1997, um, 1993, the World Wide Web camp comes, you have people starting to use uh, free communication services, right? Free email on Hotmail, people start getting Facebook accounts, right? Gmail accounts and so on. Well, when we got those free accounts, you know, as I talk about in my book, The Future of Email, we exchanged our freedom for that free stuff, okay? Because when you use the postal mail system, what was interesting was that you owned your mail, you owned your communication, the government couldn't even interfere. But when we moved to these free systems, if you read the privacy statements, some of them which are 60 to 80 pages long, they own all your content. So 1997, something interesting occurs, email volume overtakes postal mail volume. And that year I was running one of my companies, I met with the postal service and I said, hey, look, you guys have forgotten your original mission from 1792. You should be offering a public commons, an equivalent of YouTube, Facebook, email, that people don't have to take them, just like you don't have to use US Postal Service, you can use FedEx or DHL, but, that but at least if someone communicated through that and there was intervention, it'd be a 22% prison. Forget about encryption, because you can always break it. You need le the legal framework. So they thought it was a ridiculous idea. They said, oh, we're in the postal mail business. We're bigger than Walmart. Remember, a lot of these guys are bureaucrats who know nothing about technology. So one of the things that I formulated is called the Digital Rights Act. Today, we have Google, Twitter, Facebook, Vodafone, Twi uh, you know, AT&T, and um, Verizon, which basically control all of our communication. If they wanted to choke my communication, they can, the hardware guys could do it, right? AT&T, Twitter. And we already know Facebook, you know, uh, Twitter and Google already throttle me. I mean, my, my followers are about 1.2 million. And since I started hitting these guys really hard for the last six months, they've just stayed at 1.2 million. We have people, um, you know, when we started exposing election fraud, the secretary of state contacted Twitter. And that's why we just filed a $1.2 billion lawsuit telling them to get me off Twitter. This is, this is like the, this is like the king calling a local governor and saying, kick that guy out of the town square. That's what's going on. So the digital rights act says we should go back to the spirit and the innovation that people like Franklin did in creating the postal service. We need the public commons, a digital version of the postal service where all of us could communicate. So that's how you get to freedom. Now with freedom, we could start having open discourse, which is the basis of science. You can't have scientific inquiry if you have scientific consensus. That's the direct opposition to the scientific method. If we followed that model, we would still be believing the sun goes around the earth, okay? It doesn't matter if 98% of people believe that the sun goes around the earth. One guy had data clearly showing the earth went around the sun. So today we have scientific consensus because starting in 1970, the entire scientific institution became really a, the oldest profession now, um, which is basically academics pay to play science. So you have everyone nodding, yes, CO2 is a pollutant. Yes, everyone needs vaccines. Yes, we should all wear masks, you see? And then you have the science backing it up.
quote unquote, backing it up. So the way out of that is what I call the Citizen Science Act, which is all of us are reasonably smart. All of us know how to read data. So anything we fund through federal funding or state funding in any of these institutions, that data is your data, your data and my data. So when they do an experiment, it's got to be published to the cloud. I want to see that data. To this date, I haven't been able to find any of the satellite data claiming the temperature skyrocketing, right? I would like to see the data or the ice sheets are going to melt, for example. So that's called citizen science. So that basically keeps these academics in check. And in, in my view, at least two thirds of academics should probably be indicted for all sorts of crimes on how they're using federal funding for their own self-aggrandizement. And the third is what I call the Health Rights Act. And the Health Rights Act basically says, look, we need to eliminate middlemen. It's me and my doctor, me and access to medicines. There should, we should eliminate the middlemen in this structure. Is everything okay on Instagram? Okay. Yeah, that's all good. So, so the Health Rights Act says we need to have a sovereign relationship between us and my healthcare provider. Today with Obamacare, the collusion that took place between Obamacare, essentially what it did was it created virtual monopolies for a set of big hospitals, set of big pharma, and a set of um, you know big, uh, uh, big insurance companies, three of them. So that's what Obama delivered to the elites. And by the way, if you look at the healthcare, Obama Healthcare Act, he also removed the exemptions uh, or increased the exemptions for $6 million for estate taxes. Why is that in there? So basically the wealthiest of the wealthy can transfer enormous amounts of wealth to their kids. That's what Obama gave when he said he was against that. And so basically both sides of the elites did quite well. So the Health Rights Act says we remove middlemen. So that's it, truth, freedom, and health. Digital Rights, Citizen Science Act, and Health Rights Act. These are policies I've already put together. Awesome, Dr. Shear, that was really detailed. Thank you for your answer. That not only answered my question, but I think it's great for um, students in our school to look at as well. Um, moving off that, I want to ask you a bit about uh, your opinions on um, the certain mandates that the Massachusetts government has imposed. So, you know, as, as you know, mainstream media and government officials nationwide tend to generalize and make very ambiguous decisions in the responses to this virus. So what are your opinions on the quarantine rule that is imposed by uh, Governor Charlie Baker and the mask mandates in uh, Massachusetts? Are they necessary for the common good? Or was it, is it simply just a method for the government to expand their, cons uh, expand their control? Well, I think let's, since you brought up Charlie Baker, he's one of them, you know, Charlie Baker is a blue blood. He's a red coat in a fundamental way. Uh, he's a racist. You know, when I ran uh, for Republican last year, he should have embraced my candidacy. In fact, he went and found a guy called Dirty Jeff Deal who photoshopped a picture with Trump and he pushed him. This time, again, because of his, frankly, the liberal elites, you know, are the real racists. He did not want a racist, not only against color, but against working people. And he went and found a lawyer, another lawyer who works for a, a white collar criminal law firm and pushed him and in fact, just endorsed him. And what you find with Charlie Baker, here's a guy who worked for one of the biggest healthcare. He was a president of Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare. Just think back and what he's actually about. He knows no science or engineering, but he's wired in to the Harvard elite. His mentor is Bill Weld. Bill Weld ran against President Trump and endorsed, who's quote unquote a Republican, endorsed 
another elite Joe Kennedy in the last race. So all these guys are one cesspool. And if you really look at what Charlie Baker's done, let's just look at his tenure. Massachusetts today has an F minus minus an in infrastructure. All right. And yet, how does he get voted to be the most popular governor? This is because the entire incestuous media pool, academic pool, the big health, they all work together. They can take an idiot and present him as some great leader, right? It's like the emperor has no clothes. That's what this is really about. So when you look at someone like Charlie Baker at a fundamental level, he serves the interests of big pharma, big media, big academia. Otherwise, he would not be there. Otherwise, he's an absolute fool. So if you look at his policies, why does Massachusetts have an F minus minus? I don't know if you guys know this. According to the American Society of Civil Engineers, Massachusetts got is the third worst bridges, roads, water systems in the United States. And this is in a state which is home to MIT, which has supposedly the top two or three best engineering, uh, mechanical engineering, civil engineering departments in the world. Just think about that. So why is this fool called Charlie Baker keep getting elected and you find another piece of data that's quite interesting. Massachusetts was rated the 10th most corrupt state by the, by the Center for Public Integrity. Corruption and infrastructure go hand in hand. This is true of many, many banana Republican third world countries. You'll see, look around, everything's falling apart and you'll see a set of people doing quite well because construction and the infrastructure is where massive corruption takes place. So let me repeat, Massachusetts is the top third worst infrastructure in the United States. You talk to working people, they can't even take the tea. They're freezing to death. Two hours one way, two hours another way. People making 30, 40K trying to survive. That's what Charlie Baker has brought. So here's Charlie Baker who has not addressed the infrastructure issue. And the reason the infrastructure issue is important is it is infrastructure that has always delivered health, public health. It is infrastructure that has always developed vibrant economies. So if you look, go back to the late 1800s and 1900s, it was infrastructure which reduced infections. So if you look in the early 1900s, there was around 14 to 20 out of 100,000 people were getting you know, infectious diseases. But by 1950s, even before the measles vaccine came out, that had dropped to point a half out of 100,000. Why? Because of infrastructure, hygiene, sanitation, nutrition. It wasn't vaccines. So it's always infrastructure. Today, we have 30% of people are obese, okay? There's some very interesting data that came out that said glyphosate, which is what we spray on all of our foods, in, has increased what's called, uh, uh, you know, non-alcoholic, what is called fatty liver disease. So you have fatty liver disease being increased. You have only wealthy people can afford organic foods. So you can imagine the effect that it's having on health. So that issue is not addressed. We don't address public health. We've destroyed the public health infrastructure. That's what we've done. When we talk about healthcare and Charlie Baker, who ran number, you know, one of the biggest healthcare companies, Harvard Pilgrim Health Insurance Companies, it was, it's all about drugs, pharmaceuticals. So Charlie Baker knows nothing. What he has actually done is instead of address that problem, which would put a mirror to his face and his utter failure, they have created a fear mongering campaign of wear masks as that, that is what defines public health. Lockdown businesses. One out of four to five business, restaurants are out of business now. Thank you to him. He's never had to work for a living. He came from a very wealthy family. Doesn't have to do anything. His son molests uh, someone on an airplane, gets away with it. One rule for them and another rule for us. 
So this entire thing has nothing to do with health. What it has to do is with control and power and profit because they have not addressed the real issues, which is infrastructure. And they don't want to address it. They don't have to. They have private planes. They can get along their ways. But everyday working people are being squeezed. Look, the reason they need to lock down schools is have you been to a public school? It's 50 to one teacher and the, and the HVAC systems don't work. The air conditioning systems don't work. The heating systems don't work. So, and these teachers, part of the teachers union, they use that as an excuse to say, I'm not gonna come into work. And the reality is they have an excuse because the infrastructure in many of the public schools do not work. Now, if you're wealthy, you know, it's 10 to one and you can send your kid to a, to a nice private school. So it's, it's fundamentally the issue of the working people who are being squeezed, the middle class, and those who do not work. They come up with policies or regulations to interfere in our lives and tell us that they know better. So the whole thing is complete nonsense. And it's backed up by the elite big academic institutions right now who are paid to play science, as I talked about earlier. Thank you. Uh, I just want to add something to what you just said about infrastructure. So I was actually reading this book called Why Nations Fail, and it gave an example of Nogales, Arizona and Nogales, Sonora. These towns, um, uh, so Nogales, Sonora was, is in Mexico and the other ones in the United States. They're literally feet apart. Yet Nogales, Arizona is one of, the, uh, one of the towns in the United States with the best sanitary conditions, with the best infrastructure. So that town was real did really well, not only in terms of the coronavirus, but in the past it has a really good um, life expectancy, really good hospitals, just up above above world standards. But just feet apart south of the uh, south of the border, Nogales, Sonora, because of the poor infrastructure, poor sanitary conditions, it has one of the worst living conditions. And people talk about how you know viral transmissions um, supposedly go through go through air. These cities are literally have no geographic difference, yet their experiences uh, with pathogens are so different. So I, I agree with your point. Yeah. So if you, it, I mean, there's a beautiful curve. You can find it online. You look at the early 1900s infectious diseases, and it basically is an exponential decay because it has nothing to do with vaccines. Vaccines had a minuscule effect, minuscule. But instead of it, because the elites, Basically, what's happened if you and then if you rip away, you go a couple of layers down, you find that starting in uh, in the late 1800s and 1900s, there was a massive, defiant, militant movement of the American working class. They rose up and they rose up to fight for their rights because, you know, you had child labor and horrible treatments of working people in this country. And they put a gun to people like FDR. Franklin Delano Rosa was an elite. He was a racist. He was a horrible human being. He didn't help us. The, the narrative is, oh, my God, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. No, it wasn't him. It was what you, what's been ripped out of history books is if you actually go look at Times Square, if you can find some old pictures, you would see millions of people in Times Square, blacks and whites protesting. And it was a fear of the American working class rising up that they threw some bones to them, Medicare and Social Security, the eight hour workday. All those things did not come from the Democratic Party. It came from individuals names we don't even know. And ever since then. The left and the right have been trying to brand whenever people rise up as communist. Okay. So the right wing says, oh, those people are socialists who want working people's rights. And then the left wing, like Bernie Sanders, another charlatan, tries to take advantage and say, oh, I stand for the workers. Neither do. 
One uses in the name of the workers to do stuff like Obama, and they've actually consolidated power for the elites. The other people attack workers whenever they rise up as socialists, and yet they've consolidated power. So the only way out of this is for working people to fight, because since the 1950s to 1971, because of all those people fought in the streets, we had the biggest growth in the American economy for everyone. Every income distribution grew. The big, the big American pie grew. But starting in 1971, when the elites in this country were so upset, so, so much angry that they had to give any of those gains to working people, they squeezed back down. You know, we went to the petrodollar and we started imposing massive regulations. And what that resulted was between 1971 to 2018, there's a great RAND report, a beautiful analysis, forget RAND as an organization, but the scientists who did it, you'll see this phenomenal uh, set of charts and there where it looks at you know, all income distributions, but only the top 10 deciles have increased their incomes. Everyone else has gone down. And it doesn't matter whether you're a college educator or not. So if you're a college educator, you think you're gonna get a high paying job and you're gonna enjoy that pie. There's actually two pies in America right now. One that's growing smaller and one that's expanding. This one is expanding for the top 10%. For the 90%, it's, it's going down. So if, you're 50, if you make $50,000 today, your median income, you should be making $120,000. Your income was actually squeezed. And that 70K delta, if you add it up among all the people, was about $50 trillion according to this calculation. That's been distributed upwards. That's what's actually happened. So they do not want working people to organize. So they create narratives, Black Lives Matter over here and don't defund the police. And they have black and whites fighting, right? Republicans and Democrats, left and right, it's all bullshit. The bottom line is that working people in the middle of this being squeezed and the control is masks, no masks, right? Pro CO2, anti CO2, the whole thing is nonsense. When you actually go to the guts of it, the infrastructure is decaying because when you build infrastructure, everyone prospers, but the elites do not want to put a penny into infrastructure. That's what they don't want to do. They love people at home because we're using our infrastructure right now, right? Mothers, uh, elite families can get the homeschooling, right? They can get good tutors, but most people, if they're working, they can't afford to leave their kid at home or, or be at home with their kids. So you have a fundamental onslaught attack against working people. That's what's fundamentally going on when you work out all the math and the numbers. And so that's why the forced vaccination is beautiful for people like Charlie Baker, because it helps him become the agent of big pharma to generate them trillions of dollars. And that's what this is about. It has nothing to do with public health. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Dr. Shiva. Um, just going off that, one final question um, regard, in regard to the government. So we've all talked about how America has, a, uh, especially Massachusetts, has a crumbling infrastructure. And considering what we should be able to do in terms of uh, dealing with a virus, we have, I would say, um, I, I consider that we have Fail to fail to address this issue to the best of our abilities. Um, if you if you also agree with uh, what I'm saying, then who should be the blame for these failures? Is it the CDC? Is it solely the infrastructure, or is it government, or is it the president? Well, what it is is um, the the it, look. It's a complex system problem, but simply put, this is something that's been going on against people for a long time. It is a collusion between the CDC, 
the WHO, people like Fauci, the bureaucrats in Washington, and uh, Big Pharma. That's who it's, 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 it's an integrative and a set of foundations. You know, the Clinton Global Initiative, the Zuckerberg Chan Foundation, and obviously the uh, Gates Foundation. These three organizations, think about $1.7 trillion um, is protected as tax havens by these large foundations, 1.7 trillion. And so when Bill Gates, and, and think about how these foundations work, they take 50, $100 billion, they move money that should have been taxed into their private foundations, which only have to pay 5% tax, because the foundation only needs to give out 5% per year, according to the foundation rules. So now let's say you made 100 billion, you move it into your foundation, and then you get a lot of great PR. Oh my God, I'm gonna help all these dark people and you know poor people all over the world, right? So you move it into your foundation, you get PR value. Then you don't pay taxes on it, number two. Number three, you then get to drive public policy. You're basically your own government. That's what Zuckerberg's doing. That's what the Gateses are doing. That's what Clintons are doing. And yet they get to also act like we're helping the world. So it's quite, quite incredible the manipulation that takes place. So it's those foundations, it's the big pharma, it is the bureaucrats in many of these countries. You give them a few bucks, they will manipulate policy in their countries. You have to understand there's a, there's a, a finite set of people whether they're Republican or Democrat, Labor Party or Tory Party, whatever they are, they all hang out in the same circles. They're one incestuous party. It's one incestuous clan of people. It's like King One fighting against King Two, and we're here, the peasants, told to you know support King One or King Two. It's like like WWF wrestling, right? That's what this is. So voting for any one of them, even participating in that system is basically we're slitting our own throats. That's what we're doing every time we go, even get involved in this. And especially what we've uncovered with the whole election fraud issue, the voting systems, if you guys program, our votes are stored as double, they're not stored as integers. Our votes are stored as double floating point variables, which means we can fractionalize voting. So when you unravel all of this, when someone like me or a working person comes bottoms up and actually legitimately wins an election, which is what happens in third world countries, they throw a few switches and the, uh, someone else is suddenly the winner. Okay. This is what happens in third world countries. Okay. But this is what's happening in the United States, in Massachusetts, which is a banana republic, a total banana republic. Yeah. It's really unfortunate to see the current state. So uh, let's transition from the government to uh, asking more about um, your personal experience. So uh, issue here is gonna start off with the first question. Uh, so how did your experience, how did you experience the coronavirus pandemic? And also did it motivate you to further pursue the Senate election with your campaign to support the working people during this pandemic? Yes, that's a good question. So what happened to me, Isha, was the following. You know, I've been involved in the health business since I was a young kid. Um, you guys may know I grew up in a small South Indian village, at least for a third of my life in India, the other part in Bombay. But I was very interested in traditional systems of medicine, you know, started doing medical research when I was a 14-year-old kid. So I've always been interested in health and medicine, and particularly looking at the body as a system. So my company, Cytosolve, you know, we've created technology which can which can eliminate the need for animal testing or my institute systems health, where we educate people 
on how to look at systems in general, particularly the body as a system. So when, and in November of 2019, I was invited by the National Science Foundation to give the prestige lecture at the National Science Foundation on the immune system. And I gave a much more holistic view. So when the quote unquote coronavirus hit in January, I was looking at this. And if you look in early February, uh, late February, I tweeted out something which I said, um, the, you know, as an MIT PhD in biological engineering who studies the immune system every day, this coronavirus fear mongering will go down in history, one of the biggest hoaxes intended to suppress dissent, destroy economies and push mandated medicines, okay? So I could see this a mile away with what, what they were up to. And after I put up that tweet, I did some videos, I got a very interesting call from one of the chief economists of the country. And he said, Shiva, the president is blindly following Fauci. Can you please do more videos? It's quite an interesting call I got out of nowhere. And if you look from that point on, I did. I used to do two to three videos educating people. So to me, it should became more important that I as a, you know, trained at one of the best engineering schools in the world in biological engineering, one of the experts on the immune system, really started educating the broad mass of people. And so that was a personal uh, service I took on. So you can see video after video after video. Sometimes, you know, people would say, Shiva, you're, are you getting enough sleep? But I would do these videos, educating people on vitamin D3 work, educating people on vitamin A, the interconnections between a lot of the stuff we're talking about. And those videos went viral. So my follower count went from about 123,000 to literally 1.2 million in a period of like, I think six weeks. It was explosive. And in response to that, what you see is suddenly the social media establishment wakes up the big tech and they say, oh my God, we gotta choke this guy. So if you'll see my followers in six months have all stated around 1.2 million. It's like ridiculous. It should at least be probably seven or 10 million by now. And, um, but that's why we have a problem in this country because as technology comes out, and this is my personal experience, you know, when I created the first email system back as a 14 year old kid, one of the things I realized was, and I wrote this in a document back in 78, that email would change the world. But as I started building many other tech companies, I realized that I could have, I could control the lives of many people, one person. One Jack Dorsey could make one email and destroy somebody. One individual could call a voting system and say, flip the numbers. Let's say you got a thousand votes. I got a thousand votes. Multiply issues votes by three and multiply Dr. Shiva's votes by 0.5. They have that capability, microseconds. That's what has happened with power. Power can be engaged, not in like months or years, but in milliseconds. And so we live in a very, very interesting time because very few people understand technology and math and physics and science. So it becomes more, it's become, I've taken it more as a responsibility to educate people. So when we brought, I mean, the election fraud issue is the same thing. It's math and it's science. And when you look at it, you go, why are our votes in a computer system being stored as floating point variables, not as whole numbers? Now the average person does not understand what a floating point variable is when an integer is. So I have to go explain that to people. The average person doesn't understand what catholicidins are. So I have to explain that to people. And you don't get paid for doing that, which is not the intent, but the intent is you realize there's a finite set of people. We're back to an aristocracy model, a finite set of people and majority of us are peasants.
So that's the biggest thing. So that's why, you know, our campaign for U.S. Senate is not just a campaign for Senate. It's about building a conscious political movement to educate leaders. That's what we need. We need people who understand political physics. They need to understand that nothing is ever going to change unless we start bottoms up. Nothing is ever going to change unless you understand there's the establishment and then there's the not so obvious establishment like the Bernie Sanders, like the Kennedys, like the on the right wing, like the Howie Cars and the Cooners, all these people. One manipulates the white working class, the other manipulates the black working class. Al Sharpton, uh, you know, uses a, a black working class and other people on the right use, use the white working class. And so you never address real racism. Black Lives Matter serves the Democratic Party. And, you know, in Massachusetts, you know, they all work together. And, and this is something that people need to absorb, that the only way out of this is people educating themselves and building independent movements. And that is something people are not trained in. They're trained in join a party. You know, you look like this and you talk like this and now you're a politician, right? So the only dynamic here that you realize that's real is a bottoms up political movement. It's the only way to win. And it's the only thing that's always won. Everything else is just diversion, distraction, and it's taking, you know, you guys are pretty smart guys. You know, you guys are, will be part of the elites and the, in, in, the intellectual, in, the intelligentsia historically has a choice to make. Do they take their brain power and use it to manipulate people for power, profit and control? Or will they use their brain power to serve the broad mass of people for truth, freedom and health? I've made my choice. And the people like me are supposed to have not done this, right? With all the training and education I got. But I decided that I knew on a personal note who my people were. There were the working class people. I grew up in New Jersey, right? Blacks and whites and everyone. And that's what needs to be done. Otherwise, look at the infrastructure. Massachusetts got an F minus minus. And Charlie Baker's rated as a top governor. How do you get that? How do you get that? That's like saying you got an F minus minus in your organic chemistry class. And I'm saying you're the best chemistry student in the United States. How is that possible? No other industry can that occur. F minus, minus minus in history, guy's the greatest historian on the planet. So this is why it's an inside game. The Boston Globe, the Boston Herald, all of them are one big cesspool. They create a fake dialectic. It's a fake fight that they create. There is really no real dialectic because they're all part of the same cesspool. Thank you so much for that. I especially love uh, how you've taken it as your responsibility to educate the masses, especially on immunity with the coronavirus. And I really think I applaud you for taking that path. And I hope that I'll have the courage to choose a path like that in the future. Um, but moving on, uh, I would like to pass it to Will, who has a few questions about election fraud in Massachusetts. Yes. Um, again, I would also like to thank you, Dr. Shiva, for your courage. It's not a very usual thing for someone as educated as you to, to take a path like this. So um, I follow the uh, Democratic and Republican um, primary on September 1st. And like you said, I did notice that um, the person who, Kevin O'Connor, who um, supposedly won the primary, I did not even see a lawn sign uh, throughout the state. I've uh, traveled a lot through, uh, throughout Massachusetts. I used to go to school in Deerfield in uh, 
uh, in Western Massachusetts. I've never, I've never seen a single lawn sign for this guy. Yet he supposedly won sixty percent to forty percent. So, what what is your opinion on the election fraud um, during the Republican primary on September first? And uh, I would ask, actually like to ask more about your opinions on mailing ballots, which is a byproduct of the coronavirus. Yeah, did you guys see the video that we did on the election fraud? Have you guys had a chance to see that? Did you see it, William? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we could play it for everyone, but let me tell you, look, here's the, it's very simple. You know, when we were running our campaign, just, just step back and look at the dynamics here, okay? We had close to 3,100 volunteers organized across the state, 3,100, okay? Uh, nearly 10,000 lawn signs, 20,000 bumper stickers um, across the state again. Did we lose William? Oh, okay. No worries. So, so William's there. So, so we had that, we had uh, that, we had over 500 standouts. All of our volunteers were working people, which means they had full-time jobs. And then we put about nearly uh, three quarters of a million dollars into radio and TV advertising. We ran this like a general campaign. We shocked the hell out of the establishment. The other, the best word I can use for this guy is a fool. If you heard him talk, he sounds like an idiot. Okay. He, uh, you know, probably got his job because his mama and papa got him the job. All right. Uh, I've spoken to people who've litigated with him. He's a quote unquote, another lawyer like Marky. They said he was one of the dumbest lawyers they'd ever met. Totally disorganized, but he was Charlie Baker's choice. Okay. Because Baker designates. And that's what I told people. I said, this guy's a designated loser. Baker people said, no, 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 no. He supports Trump. Well, he doesn't support Trump. In fact, Baker just endorsed him. And this guy said, I'm so honored to receive his endorsement. Well, what does that mean? Because I, I you know, I, uh, because he likes his brand. Well, what is the brand of Charlie Baker? Forced vaccinations, lockdowns, destroying small businesses. We have uh, Massachusetts. Nearly everyone is uh, everyone in the state is about thirty-five to sixty thousand dollars in debt. When you look at the bonds, okay. So that's what they've created. And so when you unravel this. Here's a guy who, like you said, no lawn signs, no bumper stickers, no organization, no volunteers. And I keep giving this analogy. Imagine having a restaurant which has cockroaches in it, bad food, and spends no money on advertising. And over here is an amazing restaurant, great food, spends $10 million advertising. And this guy gets all the business. Well, clearly the mob is running his business. Or he's a marketing genius. Maybe people like roaches, okay? And he's figured out a way to market that at a low cost. That's what you're talking about. That doesn't happen. So that's the first symptom. Okay. And then you go to the fact that the night before the primary elections, another very, very corrupt individual, Francis Galvin, who's a secretary of state, Galvin reports, remember in 2018, do you know how many people voted in the Republican primary? 260,000. Okay. So just keep that here. Now, anyone, even a first grader with mail-in ballots, are you going to have more votes or less votes, less number of people participating? More, right? And in in fact, if you look across the United States, whenever, wherever there was mail-in ballots, there was literally 25% more or to 200% more vote, vote, people participating in the voting process. So when we looked at 2018, we knew 260,000 people, and that's an off year. It's not even a presidential year 
voted in the Republican primary. So we had estimated at least 325,000, 25% more, okay? We're gonna vote. Well, on the night before the primary election, August 31st, Francis Galvin, this very corrupt guy who's like Fauci, been in there for 40 years, he predicts only 150,000 people are gonna vote in the Republican primary. So just let that set in. Why is he saying that? He's saying 110,000 less people are gonna vote in the Republican primary? Does that make any sense? Makes no sense. And he's predicting that 1.2 million Democrats are gonna vote, which would be double of the number of Democrats that voted in the, in the Democrat primary of 2018, 600,000. So he's predicting a 200% increase in Democrat voters in the Democrat primary on September 1 and a 200% decrease or 100% decrease, okay? That's what he had predicted. And we had predicted for 325,000 voters, we had done our polling, people are working day and night. We knew we had about 220,000 votes and we knew this guy had maybe 100,000 votes. So second symptom, no lawn signs, we have lawn signs, Secretary of State. So we knew some fix was in. And then when we saw the votes coming in, we won in Franklin County, hand counted ballots. Okay, predominantly. What is hand counted? Someone literally gets your ballot vote and they read it by humans and they save the hand counting. Two people, I believe, look at it, okay? So in 80% of the towns in Franklin County, it's hand counted. We win there by nearly 10%. And in every other county, every other county, 60-40, So, when I gave my concession speech, my concession speech was the following. I said, election fraud took place. And this is in the heat of the moment. I said, F you to Baker, F you to this guy. We, I'm glad we have the second amendment. That was my concession speech, okay? So um, by September 9th, eight days later, we have started putting all the pieces together. We found out from Bev Harris and Benny Smith, two people who are into election integrity, Benny Smith, is a software programmer and an election commissioner down in the South. He was the one who illuminated us to the fact that in the voting systems, your vote, if you look at the variable, I don't know if you guys have programmed, if you do programming, right, you declare a variable. The variable for a vote count is stored as a decimal number, not as one, two, three. But it's, so if you and Ishu are running for office, Ishu gets 100 votes, you get 100 votes, 100 should be 100, not 100.12125, right? They're stored yeah. in decimals. Number two, starting in 2001, in the early pro, you know, progenitor of a lot of the voting systems, the, there's a feature and they're called a weighted race feature, weighted race feature. And that feature allows two candidates, one, the candidates, the, the votes of one candidate to be multiplied by a factor and the other candidate to be multiplied by a factor. So taking your example, you got 100 votes, you got 100 votes. Your, let's say issues could be multiplied by 2.5, he gets 250, yours could be multiplied by 0.5. So when we started putting this together, we said, wow, this is pretty amazing. And in the other counties where we quote unquote lost, predominantly that's machine counted. When something is machine counted, it goes through the ballot and a ballot image, like a picture is generated, like with your iPhone. So pictures are being stored on a hard drive or a, a, whatever, a thumb drive, whatever the memory card that they use. 
And then when they count the votes, what's being counted? Humans aren't counting it. A machine is looking for that ellipt elliptical dot and saying one vote for Ishii, one vote for William, one vote for, right? The machine is counting the ballot images. The ballot images are the ballots. You follow? The yeah. ballot images. And when the ballot images count those votes, at that point in tabulation, you can throw a switch. And the switch that you can throw can do the multiplication. It's called a weighted race. And in that case, in the documentation that we've seen, you can delete the ballot images because the ballot images are the evidence, right? There should be one-to-one. -one. So if a thousand voters came in, 500 votes for you, 500 votes for you, there should be what? A thousand ballot images, right? Yeah. And those thousand votes should be distributed. The actual vote should be to William and to issue, right? So what we did was we said, okay, let's, we, we had some very great advisors who said, immediately go and start asking a sample of towns to give you two pieces of data by a FOIA, Freedom of Information Act. One is give us a list of the voters who actually voted. So person John Doe, Bill, Bob, whatever, right? It's called the participating voter list. And the other list is the actual votes cast. The total count here should match the total count here. Got what I'm saying? So in towns like Boston, well, seven of the 15 towns responded back. In Boston, we found out that there are more votes than voters, 4,114 more votes than voters. How's that possible? Makes no sense. Yes, but I, again, we can publish this data to anyone who wants it. This is the data we got from them. We had 17, 1,780 more votes than voters in Newton. In Lawrence, 84 more votes and so on. All the towns that we're looking at machine counted more votes than voters, okay? So that's the third piece of evidence. And then we gave this to an election integrity expert, which, which we found something even more interesting. Look, if you guys know some basic statistics, right? So if you have, so if you think about there's 10,000 people who vote in a particular county, okay? Or a particular city. And let's say issue, you're getting 60% and you're getting 40% of the votes, William, okay? Well, as the night progresses, right, as you're getting more and more votes, it reaches what's called a steady state, right? The 60-40, maybe after 1,000, 2,000 votes, it's not going to change that much because the sampling, you follow what I'm saying? The sample is pretty evenly distributed, right, in a night of eight hours. So maybe it'll go like this, you know, maybe it's going to issue, it's going up, and then to you, but eventually it'll reach a steady state. You follow what I'm saying? You'll get a standard steady state. You guys understand what I'm saying? Yeah. So that steady state, um, uh, I just want to use it. So it'll it'll reach you if you draw the curve. Maybe it goes up like this, but it'll reach a steady state. And same for me. So you'll you'll say, okay, maybe it went up to 30, 40, but eventually it's 60, 40. And that should typically occur after a certain number of samples. Okay. Let's say after around 500 to 1,000 samples. Right. It should reach. It should. The curve should become flat. Right. However, the only county where the curve is flat is in Franklin County, which is hand counted. In every other county, the curves, let me go, go like this. They're parabolic. They keep increasing and mines keep decreasing, okay? That's a nonlinear curve. It can't be that way unless there's cheating taking place because over time you should settle to a steady state value, okay? That's the fourth piece of evidence. Then. As our election integrity expert who's looked at this for 20 years and he's seen, found many fraud in various 
election. He said, Shiva, I've never seen this kind of fraud in my 20 years, quote unquote. And then what he revealed was we got very lucky in Suffolk County where we found out Suffolk County is interesting, pretty much Democrat. And you get many precincts which have low vote counts. So in, there were like, for example, there were 25 precincts where I only got one vote. There were 10 precincts where I got two votes, you know, 30 precincts where I got three votes. But what we noticed was this very interesting pattern, which can only occur one in like 100 to 500,000 times, okay? And when we did the analysis of that pattern, the only way that could have occurred was if my votes were cut by 50% and his votes were increased by 20. And we're, we'd have the mathematical analysis. So we know the weighted race number that they did. That's what happened. These, that's why the guy didn't campaign. That's why, William, you didn't see any, he didn't have to. He's a freaking, you know, white collar criminal lawyer who Baker appointed. This is a third world country we live in. That's what we live in today. So everyone points fingers at India and Chile and Venezuela. Oh my God, look at those Africans over there. Massachusetts is a third world banana republic. We won that election on a landslide. They flipped the switch. And so if you look at, I can share with you guys, did we lose William? I think he's oh, no worries. coming back. Okay. Um, so, uh, what you see here is when we filed our complaint, I can share this with you. Let me see if I can share this with you guys. Um, yeah, so this is a complaint. I can't believe that actually like that there were that many more uh, votes than voters. That's just astonishing it, to wrap it, my head yeah, around. Yeah, I mean, I mean, let them disprove it, but either you, you're a bunch of idiots. Remember, these people are just paid to count votes. It's not like they're paid to do fixing a car, do, uh, ocean engineering or fix a plumbing system. You just have to count votes and they should be exact. It shouldn't even be one vote off. You have 4,000 votes off, 1,700 votes off. It's absolute insanity. And the thing is no one checks these guys because everyone, you know, has accepted corruption. So this is the, this is the complaint that we filed in federal court yesterday. And you can see that in this complaint, it starts off by giving my background. You know, I grew up in India. My parents left India because of the caste system and, and the lack of freedom there and the corruption. It gives my background, you know, the fact that I, you know, I, I'm a scientist and I work hard and all the different kinds of things I do. And then we get into the fact that in August of 2011, that's when I got my Twitter account. And I've done about 20 to 30,000 tweets right? Never, to the best of my knowledge, ever been shut down, ever been banned on Twitter. And then we talk about the fact in this lawsuit that on, you know, starting when the election ended, that on September 1, we started to issue FOIAs, a lot of the data, and I started tweeting this out. So the lawsuit brings all this out. And when I started tweeting this out, the Secretary of State, they've admitted, contacted Twitter to shut me down. And that's when I get shut down for 14 days for sharing factual information, even if it was not factual, even if they disagreed with me, you can't be calling an organization telling me to shut me down. That was a state involvement in that, okay? So that's what took place. I hope that helps you guys understand. So we filed a $1.2 billion lawsuit. Why 1.2 billion? Because you can't put a price on the First Amendment. It should probably be more than that, maybe a trillion, but 
1.2 billion is a good number, which gives the magnitude of the offense that they did. The Secretary of State calling Twitter to shut me down after I started exposing them. That's what took place in Massachusetts, the place where you have Phillips Exeter, Phillips, right? Andover, Harvard, MIT, supposedly all the elites. That's the way they work. They're all cheaters. They cheat, they lie, they steal, and that's how they maintain power. And they sure hate a guy like me who comes bottoms up, who represents working people. It's too dangerous for them. So they have to cheat. They're cheaters. Yeah. Pure and simple. It's not devastating. It should get people angry, William. You know, when I was at MIT, we used to organize, you know, in the 80s, right? What's, what's happened is young people should get on the ground and we need to build movements. So I'm, I'm, that's why I'm really appreciative you guys were interested in doing this because I have great hope in, in you guys because it's time that young people realize that the systems that we've created are not for everyone. They're for a finite set of people. We're back to an aristocracy. All right, guys. Thank you so much. I learned a lot during this. Uh, certainly, like as astonishing information, and I hope to use it like in the future, and especially like working to that path of helping the working people as opposed to manipulating the working pe working class using elitist like education. Yep. Well, it's time. It's time that we build a movement. That's what needs to be happening. We educate people and movements get built when people get awakened and enlightened. So to me, every time that we find guys like you, every volunteer that joins our campaign, we're winning. That's what matters. We win by building a movement. That's why in closing, just everyone remember, you got to write in Dr. Shiva. This this is your campaign, because what this says is just in the write in campaign, you just have to write in, as you can see right there, right there. Oops, you, could, you basically, people are just writing in Dr. Shiva. And it's like we're raising our sword, which is a pen, which is what the founders did when they declared their independence. They put their writing on the Declaration of Independence. By writing this, you're basically saying that I'm not following you. I'm not going to vote for them. We're going to write in Dr. Shiva. We're not voting for your systems, which are based on complete fraud. They're totally fraudulent. You don't get voter IDs in the United States. You don't get a receipt. And then they can flip the votes. I mean, the whole thing end to end is garbage. It's garbage. Anyway, guys, thank you for your questions. But as someone just said, it is a banana republic. So remember, the first way that you change is everyone becomes aware of the reality. We don't try to, uh, you know, uh, push the dirt under the rug. We actually look at it. That's what needs to be done. So this was great. Thank you. I'm going to say goodbye. Is there any anything else? I think we're done, right? Okay, thank yes. you, William. Thank you, Ishu. Bye-bye.